All right. Well, I'm going to be uh, going to be reading from uh, Genesis, so you can turn to the opening part of your Bible. First, we'll do the Catechism, though. We'll do the review in the Catechism. This, of course, is our uh, sermon series in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, we're now at question nine. So, once again, we're still going to review the questions that we've already done, just in terms of reciting them together. So, let, let's recite them in unison. Question one, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Question two, what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Number three, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Question four, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question five. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. Question six. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Question seven, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his own will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Question eight, how doth God execute his decrees? God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Last time, that was the question that we did. We're going to do question nine in just a minute. That was the question we did, and we looked at the difference between creation and providence. Those are both ways that God's decree is carried out or executed, as the Catechism says. And I showed you that creation is the work of bringing everything into existence, which God had appointed in his decree, which he had planned, which he completed in six days of bringing it all together, creating it all. And in providence is the ongoing and governing and ordering of all the things that he created, including his creatures. So we'll be looking at uh, creation for the next couple of weeks, and then we'll look at providence after that. So today we have the first of the two questions that uh, are particularly speaking about creation. It's an important topic for us because this is something that is often not uh, accepted and understood today. Question nine. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. 
perhaps I should say, very good. That's what I always say to my children when we do that one, because it ends with the words very good, and when they get it right, I say, very good. Okay, today's topic then is an important part of God's revelation because it is one that is often not believed, even by those who claim to be his disciples. There's a gross inconsistency about it. The creation account is just as much a part of God's word as any other part. And you can be sure that the one who rejects this part of God's word will easily enough give liberty to himself to reject another part, even a moral part that rubs him in the wrong way. The path that many denominations have taken begins with a rejection of the literal account of creation and then things like the prohibition of um, uh, of women, women to preach go, go away and then the rejection of the doctrine of hell, of eternal punishment, because that's not a comfortable doctrine. And then they move on to... Uh, let go of uh, Christ being the only way of salvation. That's the thing that is often offensive to people. You mean that's the only way? What about all the other religions? People will say, we've talked about that before, of course, that there's only one way. And we'll be looking at that in the future as well. But we, we move from, from one thing to another. If we set aside God's word, what, what is our standard then? It's something else. So l- let me now move on uh, to our text And this is a text that ought to be believed if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, where we're given an account of God's work of creation. Listen as I read it to you from God's holy word. Genesis 1, verse 1, the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the, waters be, let, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters 
abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves and which the waters, with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. There we end the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to it. So this afternoon I want to look at four simple things that we are taught and that we ought to believe about creation that are set forth in this account. First, we are taught here that God made the heaven and the earth, that he made them. The opening verse declares it, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth refers to everything that makes up our material world. This is clear as the narrative proceeds. In verse 3, you see that even the light is said to be created. This is inclusive of all kinds of energy and such things. In verse 14 through 15, you see that the great celestial bodies are said to have been created on the fourth day. What a marvelous thing this is when we consider all the billions of stars and such that make up the whole universe. In verse 20 through 21, birds and fish are created on day five. And on the next day, the land animals and man himself was created. Nothing is excluded. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 states, states expressly that everything is included. It says, for by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in him all things consist. And when we look at the creation account, the Hebrew word that's translated created 
Genesis 1.1, is the word bara, which always refers to that which is made of nothing. Bara is used only of God for the simple reason that he's the only one who creates things out of nothing. We always start with something. And because this is the way it is for us, it's very difficult for modern man to suppose that something could be created out of nothing. We don't know of doing that. But yet, that things are here and that they're not eternal shows us that God has created. It's not difficult for him. You know, if you think about that, where did even, even space come from in which the things that are created are, are placed? Where did the laws come from and the, the ideas come from? These things are not self-existing things. No, they're very obviously the product of a transcendent God who dwells in a very uh, different dimension than we do. It's a marvelous thing that everything that you can see around you is even here at all. It's because God called it into being. God tells us that it all came from him, that he made it from nothing. He did not have to obtain materials because he is the one who made the materials. There were no materials to obtain until he formed those materials, till he called them into being ek nihilo, out of nothing. This is a very wonderful thing. All of this came from God. You see in this his power. We looked at this a little bit when we looked at the attributes of God a while back. What a mighty God he is to place the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens on a single day. To call into being the earth with all its complexities of life. that man, Complexities that man has not even begun to discover. You see his wisdom, his imagination. We think we're smart when we discover DNA and have just barely begun to understand how it functions. But the Lord is the one who designed it all and made it from nothing according to his decree. The complexity of these things is astounding. We think we're artists, but he's the one who came up with the whole idea that there should be such a thing as a rock and a tree, such a thing as green and red and blue, and and such a thing as art. Such a thing as seeing and hearing and touching and smelling and tasting. There could have been some other sense than the five that we're familiar with if God wanted to make it. It's just as different as those five are from each other. We're, we know these and we can't, we can't fathom something beyond that. But God brought all this out of his own imagination. It's his handiwork and his invention. You see his great love and goodness in the creation. Everything, when we read this creation account, is centered around us. It's made for us. The focus is on these things as they relate to man. Light is given so that we may see. The sun and the stars are given to mark the seasons and to be sources of light and show forth the glory of God. We're told that God's not dependent on those celestial bodies. He can have them or not if he wishes. He can Give us light, all the light that he wants without them or with them. But he has appointed, he has, he has placed them to be light. In verse 29 through 30, the Lord gives the fruits and the vegetables to man to eat. Just think of all the varieties that he has given us. All the beauty that he's given us for no other purpose than joy. 
all the tasty foods and beverages for no other purpose than our enjoyment. He is no utilitarian God. He is a generous, bountiful God who loves to make his creatures smile. Think about that. Think of all even the interesting creatures that he has made, the animals and things. What what marvel. We ought to worship and give thanks to him and trust him when we consider the things that he has made. This alone, not even considering our redemption, is sufficient reasons for us to worship God forever and ever. What a glorious difference there is between us and the Lord. We are mere creatures, but he is the creator who calls into being the creature. Is the, he calls into being what was not as though it was. That God did this is something we just know, even without special revelation. Romans 1 says that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen by us through the things that he has made. To any pure soul, and of course there are no pure souls that are remaining after the fall, but if there were, it is patently obvious that this material universe is not self-existing. And the more we learn about it, the more marvelous design and wisdom that's in it all, the more clear it is that it is not self-made. As humans, we are different from the animals in that God has made us in his image and has given us a sense of God, a sense of deity that is within us. This is our great privilege, and it makes it possible for us to know God through his creation. Animals can't come to that conclusion. They don't have the ability to to look at the things that are made and to see the hand of God. And, of course, we would all be able to do that except for the problem of the fall. But even so, we are framed to know that he is through the things that he has made. To deny that he is the creator of all, actually, we have to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We have to force away that which is obvious. This suppression is a desperate activity that taxes the best and brightest among us if they are trying to do it. They come up with one theory after another and hang on to their theories as truth. Truth that things that should have been discarded long ago that are disproven, but until they get another theory, they'll hang on to the ones that they have. When we deny our maker, we're no longer any different than the beasts, as I mentioned earlier. And soon we start to live like the beasts. We cease to worship God, and then God gives us over to live like an animal giving us over to degrading passions and immorality. This is what we see happening in our society today. And the root of this is the suppression of God. With all of this suppression of truth going on around us, we should be especially thankful that in the creation account, that, or that God gives us the creation account, as he does in the scriptures It helps us to avoid being deceived when we are Christ's disciples because we have proof from Scripture that we know to be true intuitively and then we're able to also see it in Scripture that God made the heavens and the earth. Because we have an account of it in the Word, 
we're not as likely to be led about by every wind of doctrine that man invents in his effort to suppress the truth. At least we shouldn't be. Secondly, told you there are four things we're looking at. Secondly, we're taught in Genesis 1 when God made the heavens and the earth. Okay, what we just looked at was that he made the heavens and the earth. Now we see also when he made the heavens and the earth. It says in the beginning. Creation is not something that he dragged out over a long period of time. Might have been interesting if he had. You know, you'd be uh, driving along and all of a sudden you would you would see an, a new sort of tree that just, boom, poof, it just called into existence. And there it was. And you're, you're walking along and, and poof, there's a new kind of animal. And we'd never know what was going to pop up next or what we were going to see if God was still still creating things. We wouldn't know how to deal with the, with the new animal. <laughs> uh, something we'd never seen the likes of before. It might be completely different than anything we've seen. Or maybe something that was altogether as different as an animal is from a tree that we've never even thought of before or imagined. It would make things interesting to be sure. But it would give a great deal of instability in the world. And God has chosen not to, not to do things like that. He's given us an environment that, that we can study and that doesn't have these huge changes going on in it. He, he created it all at once. And then he governs it and, uh, and carries it on. So we don't have new creation going on um, in, in our world. Perhaps a special question that would come to mind today, though, is whether God created viruses. This situation that we're in right now. Did God create viruses? The answer is that indeed he did. Did you know that scientists estimate that humans have 380 trillion viruses in us? They do. Scientists estimate that. Most of these are harmless. And we're learning that some of them are not only beneficial, but even necessary for our survival. For instance, if we didn't have certain viruses in our, our stomach, then uh, the bacteria would completely take over our whole, our whole stomach lining and everything. But there's a, there's a kind of a, a mixture of things going on there. But what about COVID-19? Did God create that? Well, that's like asking if God created St. Bernard's and Yorkies. Did he create St. Bernard's and Yorkies? Well, the answer is that he created the original dog pair that had the ability to bring forth within their genetic makeup to bring forth all the variety of animals that we see. Just like with humans, a pair of humans that were had within them the ability to bring forth all of the different people that we see on the earth. Some of these breeds that of dogs that are have been made can can kill people. Other ones, like my dog, can only nip at your ankle if they, if they wanted to. Uh, when God created viruses, they were not able to harm us. But after we fell into sin, God sent death and the curse. Then everything got out of kilter, out of whack. Then viruses could harm us, either because they can mutate into something that's harmful to us, or... Because something in us breaks down and changes so that what had not been otherwise harmful to us is now harmful to us. 
So the answer is that God created a virus that was capable of mutating into COVID-19 and another that could mutate into H1N1. Because they are mutated, viruses, interestingly, are actually rather unstable as things go and often only survive for about 40 years. H1N1 was like that. It survived when it came the first time for about 40 years and then it apparently, shall we say, escaped from a, from a test tube. Uh, so somebody got contaminated in that way where they had it in a lab and uh, we had another bout with it a few years ago, but it's pretty much gone now. It, it kind of runs the life course and then it, it kind of falls apart because it's something that's mutated and changing. It's not, it's not stable. And some of the worst viruses are the ones like COVID-19 that uh, go from, from one kind of creature where there's not really a problem to another where there is, like from, from bat to a human. They, they jump over to, a, to another creature when, when, when there's a mutation of some kind. So COVID-19, I, I found this very interesting in researching some of this, that it comes, uh, it's, it's the same uh, root virus, if I could call that, as uh, the common cold. And uh, both of those are coronaviruses. So you have coronavirus when you have a cold. But it's, uh, it's a different type of um, coronavirus than COVID-19. So viruses themselves are not new. But like everything else, they can change when they break down by mutation, which is a loss of genetic information. And I want to say that too, that... Um, you know, they can't, scientists can't show where genetic information is increased because it's so complicated. It can rearrange, it can break down, but you can't add whole new information because that requires a very sophisticated process and intelligence. So when we see the changes like the, um, well, animals coming forth, uh, like we were talking about dogs and things like that, and some of them have long fur, some of them have short fur, some of them are big, some of them are little. When, when those things come forth, that variety is all built into the original dog pair. Sometimes when there's a, a branch that goes off for a long time and is isolated, they may not no longer be able to, to bring forth. They've lost the ability to bring forth what, uh, like the short-haired dogs, for, for example, or something like that. But uh, it's always a loss of information rather than a gain an increase of information. So with all this um, so with all this suppression of truth that's going on, uh, we should be especially thankful for God giving us a clear creation account. We're told in Genesis 2, 1 through 2 that everything that he did was created, it was complete after six days. The heavens and the earth were finished. God ended his work and God rested. Verse 2 says, verse 1 says, the heavens and earth were finished. Verse 2 says, God ended his work. Verse 2 again says, God rested from his work. And verse 3 says, he established the weekly cycle for us to, to commemorate his work, the Sabbath. So we need to look more deeply into the six-day claim because many questions come from this. So when, in the beginning, he made everything that is, and as we saw, it mutates and changes, and when, he did it in six days. That's how long it is, I guess. 
So it's, it's best to understand the days referred to in Genesis 1 as literal 24-hour days. The real problem of those who doubt this is a problem with the supernatural character of the events. You see, if you want to have a naturalistic rather than a theistic basis for your existence, then really you can't, uh, it's impossible for it to happen quickly. It has to be something that, that had to gradually form and it would take you know, millions and billions of years. Really, I really I can't be really I can't be quite that hard on those who who have that um, who, who come to the Bible and, and and reject the 24 hour days because the truth is that there are many and I want to be straightforward about this there are many Reformed theologians who certainly do have a theistic basis and believe that God can and did create out of nothing who suggest longer days or the framework hypothesis, or something like that, of the creation account. But their arguments seem to be solely to accommodate the unbelieving scientists who are operating out of naturalistic presuppositions that can't allow. They, they won't even look through the lens of the possibility of a theistic interpretation where God actually created everything, and yet they never can get back to the origin and how everything came to be. So they try to account for their existence without a creator, which is an impossibility. We're, we're creatures. One of the dangers of these other theologies, too, not only are they built on the wrong foundation in that way, even though the people who hold them have a theistic understanding, the reason for wanting to have these ideas is to accommodate those who, who don't have a theistic basis. One of the dangers of these other theories is that they suggest that there was death before the fall and that the world was a place of violence and destruction before God had placed his curse on it on account of man's sin. This is incompatible with the theology of the Bible, which teaches that death came through Adam and that the creation was all very good. We're going to look at it being very good more in a few minutes, but at the same time, there are many first-rate scientists, too. This, this makes it even uh, more reasonable to believe in the literal 24 hours. Many first-rate scientists who believe in six 24-hour days. These scientists have demonstrated how the flood is a much better way to explain how fossils and layers of sediment were laid down. Um, real simple illustration, you have a, a, a big tree that goes up through layers that took Millions and millions of years to, to lay down, according to the long age people. Well, I've never seen a tree in my backyard. We've got trees back there, and I've never seen a dead tree that stood there sitting around for a very long time, even for my lifetime. They rot, they fall over, and they're gone. They don't sit around and wait for sediment to build up for millions and millions of years. So there's all kinds of just very simple things like that that are... Um, help us to, to see that there's a whole other way of looking at things. The difficulty of trying to explain everything on naturalistic principles without God's intervention can best be illustrated by looking at the creation of Adam or the creation of an oak tree on, uh, in, in, this first, in the six days of creation, out of, coming out of nothing. So if you think, okay, did, if you say, yes, God did create out of nothing, okay, he created a man out of nothing, or he created that oak tree out of nothing. 
Well, did he create Adam as a baby? Someone saw Adam when he was, uh, say, a week old. They wouldn't say, oh, he's a week old. They would look at him and say, no, he's, he's, he's a grown man. If they saw the, the first oak tree that was created, they'd say, well, it's a big standing tree. It's, it's got to be at least 30 years old because God didn't create an acorn. He created an oak tree. He didn't create an egg, but he created a chicken who can lay eggs. Yet any scientist who sought to explain where they came from and refused to believe that God was involved, that he created the tree and the man in the, in, in the week, then they would, they would look at the rings on the tree. And they would say, see, the tree has growth rings. It lived through 30 seasons of years. And the man, he can't be a week old. Look at him. He is full grown. He can speak. Now, of course, no scientist is faced with this exact problem. But this illustrates for us the nature of the problem. If the scientist begins with a refusal to believe that God created the world and all that's in it, then he has to try to figure out how all those animals and things came about on their own. So he has to assume that they all just gradually came out from other things without any outside involvement. And he has no way to know where the materials and the laws came from in the first place. They're just here. They're, they just somehow evolved too. It's really a fantastical theory. And many scientists realize it. But rejecting God's word, they have no other choice. It's really quite unreasonable though. It's not unreasonable to believe in the testimony of God. Well, now let me show you that the scripture indicates that the world was made in six 24-hour days. Look at the words that are used. The word yom is the Hebrew word that's translated day in our English Bibles. The word in English, very helpfully, has almost the same range of usage as it does in Hebrew. The Hebrew word and the English word have the same kind of usage. The primary meaning of the word in both cases is a 24-hour period. A secondary meaning is of day as opposed to night. Another is of a period of time, like back in my day or in Abraham's day, someone might say. Some have argued that this last usage applies here, that the days refer to long periods of time or ages. This is often said to try to make room for more time, again, by, because scientists that don't believe God created have to have more time, but there's no exegetical basis for this. When the word is used of a period or an age, it's always very clear in the way it's used. And here, there's nothing to indicate that it has any other meaning. There's a, there are actually several things to indicate that it has the meaning of a 24-hour period, that yom is used of 24-hour periods. First of all, that it has the ordinal attached to it, the first day. The second day, it says. Nowhere is the word yom used with the ordinal, the first, second, third day, when it's talking about periods of time. Secondly, that each day is said to have a morning and an evening. That indicates 24-hour days, especially when the morning and evening is, is uh, described as it is in the scriptures. Uh, thirdly, that God built into creation the Sabbath week, suitable to man's constitution, and calculates the time based on the days of creation. It almost seems like God chose the length for creation based on what was suitable to man in his constitution, a seven-day 
week with a rest, you know, resting period and work. He made us to function best on a seven-day cycle. And there's no reason to suppose that the original seven days are different lengths from the subsequent days, unless it's to accommodate some theory, you see, of unbelieving scientists. And so theologians wanting to find agreement with unbelieving scientists who are operating on a whole different non-theistic basis try to try to blend with them in that way. But that's the only reason you'd really have for for looking at these words and how they're used in any other way than as 24-hour periods. Okay, moving on to our third thing. We were taught how God made heaven and earth. So we've seen that he made it, and we've seen that when he made it, how long it took. Now I want to see how God made heaven and earth. Well, he's spoken into existence. By the word of his power, as our catechism says. You can see this in verse 3, Genesis 1-3. He speaks light into existence. In verse 14, he speaks all the hosts of heaven into existence. All the planets and stars and galaxies. In verse 24, he speaks the land creatures into existence. This creative word of his, his word of decree, or his word of power by which he calls things that are not, so that they suddenly appear, is the manner of God's creation. The only way that we know that God did this is by faith. I mentioned this before uh, in in our reading, and uh, I also mentioned before that it's intuitive for us to know that God made everything, but to know that he did it by merely speaking is not intuitive for us. We wouldn't know that unless we're told that. We wouldn't know how he created Just that God created everything. That's the thing that's built into us, into our very nature. Hebrews 11.3, though, tells us in God's word how he did it, and we know it by faith. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now, I mentioned this when we read it. What does it mean when it says... By faith. Many people have the idea that faith is just believing something to be true, even though there is no evidence for it. I remember I had a friend that I was talking to. I, he grew up with, with me in my neighborhood, and I was talking to him about the Lord. And he said, oh, I have faith. And when I examined that, what he meant was that he thinks that everything's going to turn out all right. He has faith that everything will turn out all right. But he's not believing anybody's promise or any testimony. So it's a kind of way of using the word faith, but not the way the Bible uses it. The way the Bible uses it is believing what God has said. That's faith. Scripture, faith is not at all just believing something like a leap in the dark or something. It's not in the dark at all. It's in the light of God's revealed word to us. Faith is believing something is true because he said it holding to the testimony of God. Now, the fullest evidence of something being true is that God has spoken it. Surely you would sooner believe your creator than a historian or a scientist that cannot think outside the box of his naturalistic presuppositions. So believing that God created the world of his own power is a touchstone of our faith. By that, I mean it's something that you can test people with to see if their faith is real. Do they believe that God can call things that are not into existence? 
Romans 4, when it talks about the nature of saving faith, shows that Abraham was able to believe that God could give him a child only because he believed that God could call into existence that which was not. A person who cannot believe that Jesus healed people and gave them perfect and immediate use of their arms and legs, even if they were severely damaged or amputated, doesn't really believe that God can call into existence that which is not. He does not really believe that God can give life to dead sinners either. You see, regeneration is a greater miracle than creation. God speaks life into us by the word of his power. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in a God who can do that, you don't believe in a God who can save you, whatever you may say to the contrary. And if you don't believe in him, that means that you need to be saved. As I mentioned before, there is also a good, this is also a good test because it's almost invariably the case that those who reject moral teachings or doctrinal teachings in Scripture that do not suit them also reject the literal six days of creation. Moving on, fourthly, we are taught in what condition God made heaven and earth. I told you that we would come to that. The Lord makes a point of telling us this. After each successive stage of creation, he tells us that it was good. You can see that comment at the end of each day's work. He looks at what he has done, assesses it, and declares it to be good. Then, after man was made, the final aspect of his creation, he tells us that it was very good. Now, that's based on his holy divine judgment as God. He was pleased with what he had made, including man. Now, of course, God knew what he had made and did not really need to inspect it. He knew all about it. He knew what it was. But he did this. He, he declares what he thinks of his creation for our benefit so that we will know that it was all good when he made it. In his eyes. This has a number of important theological implications for us. First, this teaches us that God is a God who inspects his creation. He cares about it. He's the judge of it. And he has an opinion concerning its condition. He reveals this from, you see, the very beginning of creation. He's concerned about what we do. He's not detached or indifferent to his world. Now that we are fallen, it offends many people that God does judge his creation and that he finds offense with it. He finds offense because of the corruption, not because of how it was made. It's his right to do so. It is his, it is for him to declare what he thinks of what he made and what it has become. We must all answer to him for what we are and for what we do. Second, it teaches us that God only creates what is good. You must not think that the human race was always sinful and corrupt. It was not. God fully approved of us when we first came from his hand. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. 
God is not the author of sin. Sin is our doing. It is our corrupting of his good creation. You see, evil only exists as corruption of what is good. This is why our offense is so great, because we're a perversion of what God made. Thirdly, even inclusive of the fact that we fell, from God's standpoint, it is all very good. Even when you take into consideration the fact that God made us, we fell, still the way God made us was good. He made us with the capacity to fall, with the possibility of fall, with the ability to fall. You see, even sin itself was part of his decree and his purpose, part of his plan. God will gain glory. He is gaining glory to himself through it, through the fall. When he pronounced man is very good, man was very good. Man had not fallen, but he was subject to falling. Still, God saw this as very good because man was just as God had created him to be with the ability to fall and to pervert and to go astray because God had purposed that he would reveal his glory to man and to angels and even within the triune God, the revelation going on, delighting in each other that, uh, that we would occur, that God brought this about. So in the creation, we see that God carried out exactly what he had planned. He did things just the way that he had decreed. And you see that he did all this to get glory to his own name. And as I have shown you, this is the best thing for us that God did it for his glory, because our happiness is not found glorying in the creation, but glorying in the one who created it all. And so since he made everything for the purpose of revealing his glory, even man with the ability to fall for the purpose of revealing his glory, then we are in a better situation and that we can now find that the revelation of God's glory as he is pleased to give it to us. And we trust him. We see his glory and his perfection through the things that he has made. Let us praise him and give thanks to him for what he has done in the creation of the world. What a kind, what a mighty, and what an imaginative God he truly is. Please stand for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that you created everything just as you wanted it to be. That it was all very good. Nothing from your hand was corrupt in any way whatsoever. Yes, you made us so that we are subject to corruption, subject to fall. But you did not make anything that was corrupt or defiled. We praise you, Lord, that you are so powerful that you called it all into being by the word of your power. You didn't have to use other things you had to use other things, then those things would have been something outside of you, something greater than you that you didn't create. We praise you, Lord, that you're the one who, who made all the materials and made all the things from the materials. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us that you made them in such a way that, that they are around us, Lord, for us to see, for us to enjoy, for us to hear, for us to taste and touch. Father, you have been so very kind to us and so considerate of us. And we thank you, Lord, for your 
your, um, your goodness in that way. We also praise you, Lord, that, that you're the one who, who did make it all, Lord, that there's nothing that was made that, that you did not make. And we pray, Lord, that we would give you glory and thanksgiving for all of these things that we do have. Father, please help us also not to fall into the skepticism of our world. We know, Lord, that there's been all kinds of crazy skeptical ideas in every age of mankind, and they've always been very confident with those things. And soon those things begin to to disappear and they fall apart. Their theories all come crashing down and then they come up with something else. And Father, we often in our modern times think that, uh, oh, well, now we know. But truly, Lord, the theories that are about today, if you really look at them, are some of the most foolish that have ever been brought forth. We marvel, Lord, that even such things can be believed. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to, to see clearly from your word what is true and to distinguish it from what is false and fanciful. Father, we thank you that, um, that, that you have given us your word and that it is sure and clear that it is the word of Christ that he has appointed for us, that the prophets spoke by his spirit, and that they didn't just write their own interpretation of things, but that they wrote as they were moved by the spirit and brought forth things that were, were true and infallible, that we might have confidence and we might rest in them and not be driven about by every wind and every notion that, that comes into the world. Father, we see that there is so much confusion. We see the confusion in our world increasing, Lord, as people more and more have things that they are confused about. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be light and to bring forth what is true as we are grounded in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. We thank you that it was also your decree and your plan that he would come forth as Redeemer, that all along that when you created the world, that you had purposed that that would be so. And we thank you that now he has appeared and that we're able to find salvation and new life in him, that we may be sharers in the new heavens and the new earth, the inheritance that Jesus Christ has forever and ever in your house. We pray, Lord, that we would be found resting in him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Receive the benediction and the blessing of the Lord our God. May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen.